0: This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect.
1: Sarah Moulton is one of the food world's most beloved chefs, authors, and personalities. With a career spanning more than four decades, she boasts more than 1,500 television episodes, as well as a tenure as executive chef for Gourmet magazine. Not to mention Cooking Live on the Food Network, Sarah's Weeknight Meals, and Milk Street Radio. Coming up, you'll hear about Sarah's quite unusual path to culinary school, from which she graduated second in her class, about her decision to choose children over the restaurant business, her unique relationship with none other than Julia Child, and why she credits her mother, her great study habits, and love of soup as keys to her unparalleled success. This is Sarah's fantastic story. In the vast culinary landscape we share, we are all carving out a place for ourselves. Each of us in our own way is a one woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold and welcome to my kitchen. Sarah Moulton, it's amazing to be with you today. I feel as though we have traveled similar roads for the last 40 years. We sure have. And here we are together face-to-face to chat about it and to take a deep dive into your remarkable career. Honestly, I don't know anyone who has done all of the things that you have done in, in the food world um, you... Well, you're
0: you're pretty much right there, too, my dear.
1: Well, you know, we both, in a funny way, really have forged new directions for ourselves. And we have uh, taken some risks, I think, and really stretched and found ourselves in many strata of, of this amazing industry that in some ways, Sarah, you and I actually helped start over 40 years ago. I always thought you were quite a bit younger than me, and I just found out that you're not. I'm probably older than <laughs> you. You are. <laughs> Two years. You look fantastic. Well, so do you. <laughs> well, we're doing okay. I think we there's a real mutual admiration for sure. But I do want to hear how you actually got started. I did not know that you went to, well, I knew you went to the Culinary Institute, but that you staged in a very important restaurant in Chartres, France. You were a chef at La Tulipe, which was considered one of New York's best restaurants. It was a three-star restaurant. I loved it madly. It was a great restaurant. A great place. You became the executive chef for Gourmet Magazine's Dining Room, which is a very prestigious job to have when you think about New York City and all the chefs, and, and, and there you are. You were Julia Child's sidekick on Good Morning America. Sarah, I read that you have done over 1,500, maybe even 2,000 television shows on the Food Network and other places. <laughs> you have a half a dozen cookbooks or maybe more to your name. You're married. You have children. You're sitting here looking really calm and beautiful. What's up? <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, you're so cute. Some of that was slightly exaggerated. I only have four cookbooks. I only did 1,500 shows on the Food Network. I've done many more of my public television show, which is still, we're hoping, we're, we're heading into season 10. We're going to be shooting it this year. But um, I racked up so many shows on the Food Network because I did a live show. So it was nightly, uh, initially Monday through Friday and then Monday through Thursday. And one year I
1: did two live shows. So if you do that, you certainly do rack up the shows. And that was really uncharted territory. It's when the Food Network just got started. Correct. And were you the only one doing that every night?
0: Well, when I I first started, the show before me was David Rosengarten and Donna Hanover. It
1: was called... TV News and Views or Food News and Views. Yeah, something like that.
0: You know, because I know you were on it. I was the first guest. Uh, I'm not surprised to hear that. (laughs) That Talking about Les Dames Descoffiers, so we can talk about that too. Yes. Anyway, that was also live. Um, And as a matter of fact, I inherited their set. So Mm -hmm. when I started, which was April 2nd, 1996, I think they'd already been on for at least a year. And the Food Network thought I was risky because I was a mere female, I think. Back then, the men were king, although the women took over later on. But (laughs) at any rate, they wouldn't give me my own set. So I, we had to, live to live, we had a two minute, three minute, you know, break, to swap out, put on my, you know, equipment and the food I needed. But I was on their set, and their set came up to my chin. It was very tall, the (laughs) counter, and there was no oven. So they put me on a riser um, that ran just the length of the counter. So all night, every night, on top of doing a live call-in TV show, I worried about falling off of that damn riser.
1: Oh, no. Did it ever happen?
0: No, good. I guess did once in mid-sentence. But I was sort of mad at him at that moment anyway, so I was sort of glad. But anyway, any rate, yes. So I was the only other live show, and there's – I don't know how many years they did it. It was a fun show. It was like the first variety show, sort of like The Chew or something later on down the road. Um, but I ended up doing the first show from 96 to 2002 a spring yeah.
1: remarkable and was it around the same time you were doing good morning america with julia child
0: I was I did um I started behind the scenes at GMA uh from 86 to 96 um but then when I started food network I couldn't do all the prep for all the chefs it wasn't just julia it was anybody um so you were the food stylist for I was the, the food show. stylist mm-hmm. exactly it was only like every I don't know if it was there once every two weeks. Mm-hmm. Now it's more often. Um, but I couldn't do that anymore because I was also working full-time at Gourmet. So they, what they put me on is their food editor on Good Morning America. So I started
1: doing on-air appearances. Really remarkable. I'm thinking back to 1996 when you started doing all of these um, TV kinds of things. Was the word foodie around then? What did we call ourselves then?
0: I honestly don't know.
1: I think maybe gourmet was still the word we used to describe ourselves yeah, or interesting. other people. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. I don't know, Roseanne. I don't know. It feels so antiquated now. Yes, it does. It really does. But when I was reading your bio, I certainly know a lot about you. Many people do. But I wanted to go way back. And the fact that you majored in college in something called the history of ideas, I said, uh-huh, that's
0: the secret. Oh, and it gets even stranger. I wrote my
1: thesis on Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse. Oh, one of my favorite. Oh, beautiful, Authors beautiful. Authors and favorite books. Yes, loved fact, it. Now I want to reread it. Yes. So, Sarah, so when I read that, I said, okay, this is the genesis of all of this because Ultimately, you really are an idea person, and your medium may not be paints and maybe you don't know, sing and dance, but all of your ideas really are manifested in your extraordinary food and your expression of food. So what? how did it happen from Virginia Woolf to uh, going to the Culinary Institute?
0: Well, actually, it has nothing to do with anything but my mother.
1: <laughs> Seriously. It often comes down to that. Well, and what...
0: We hope as mothers that we can do for our children. Although it seems sounds like yours is launched. Mine are still seven, working on it. Are somewhat launching, yes. Um, but I grew up in New York City. My mother was a fantastic cook. And, you know, back in the sixties, she was cooking shadro and fresh fennel and um mushrooms, you know, even just plain old white mushrooms were exotic back then. And then she started traveling to Europe and she would come back and we'd have to make a meal from the country she'd just been at. Oh,
1: how wonderful. Which was all
0: Europe. She didn't get wild and crazy. She didn't go to Asia or anything. But so suddenly we, on a Saturday night, we'd have a dinner party and I'd be her sous chef and we'd be making paella or a moussaka or <laughs> a veal salt and baka or something. And this in the 60s was, you know, sort of unusual. Remarkable. But we had the New York Times cookbook. The Craig Playborn, yes. the blue
1: one, the blue yes. linen cover, my yes. very favorite book. Of course, you day. know, it resonates with a
0: lot of people. I think Joyce Goldstein and I even talked about it once. Another
1: wonderful show. Yes, yeah. that
0: it was uh, an early – I'm not sure all the recipes are the best, but they they were the only recipes we had back then, and a lot of them are quite good. Um, any rate, so we would make the dinner party, and I guess I was somewhat competent. And then the next day, Sunday uh, – Everybody in my family, so I have two siblings, an older sister, younger brother, um, after church had to make their own lunch, my mom was like, you're on your own, I'm not... Doing that. So, my mom would have an exquisite lunch of a perfect pear and runny brie, and my sister would have, you know, yogurt because she was on a perpetual diet, <laughs> weren't we all? My brother would go to the corner deli and get a roast beef sandwich with Russian dressing and coleslaw. My dad would make himself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and me, I would take the last night's leftovers and turn them up into something completely different. A frittata, a pasta, a soup, a something, and everybody would look at me and have lunch envy. And I think my mother must have remembered that. So fast forward to college, University of Michigan, you know, it's hippy-dippy days. I'm having fun. I'm doing all the things that we all did. So this is early 70s. Right. I started, yeah, in early 70s. So radical feminism, demonstrating against the war in Vietnam, doing alternative things, um you know, living with a bunch of people, cooking, we cooked a lot. I lived Mm. with a bunch of women, actually, and we cooked vegetarian because we couldn't afford meat.
1: Ah. And back
0: then we recycled because we cared about the environment. It's amazing how that, but um, I always had a cooking job, even though before I landed on history of ideas, I pursued becoming a doctor, a lawyer, a biological medical illustrator, which the U of M was known for, but none of those actually panned out So, but I still in my spare time while I was in history of ideas, which meant reading a lot of books, which was wonderful. I was either a waitress or eventually I ended up as a cook at a wonderful jazz bar in Ann Arbor that is no longer, alas, that was run like a hippie commune. It was called the Del Rio. And I just loved it. It was so much fun. So, it took me a year to finish that thesis on Virginia Woolf. And I'm living in Ann Arbor in an apartment with my boyfriend, and I'm cooking at this bar, probably making 60 bucks a week. I'm sure my parents must have supplemented the rent. Um, and I'm happy as a clam. I'm Do you not... remember
1: what you were cooking?
0: Yes. Okay, the favorite, <laughs> the favorite thing. I was known for my soups, actually. Oh. Although I have to say it was pretty gross back then because the base of the soup was not a real stock. It was that god-awful soup base, you know, that's the, the that, North
1: Swiss. yeah
0: i don't i don't know if it was names? Norse, whatever it was right. industrial and it was a paste and you just added water and it was mostly sodium um but even so i had a lot of fun with it so there'd be fresh ingredients you know you'd start with i think maybe we didn't do a roux and then you'd add your all your vegetables or maybe your some meat product and then you'd add the terrible soup base but i don't know <laughs> i love making soups i i do to this day i love making soup But the thing I loved the most was this item we had called the Debt Burger, D E T. Now, it was named after, this is the sort of things that happened at this bar. We had live jazz on Sundays, but other days it could be sleepy in the afternoon. And one day, <laughs> one of the cooks, whose name was Bob Detweiler, got bored. So he invented a burger and named it after himself, the Det Burger. <laughs> and it was a quarter pounder, you know, we cooked it on the flat top, that was topped with the debt Mix. Now, the debt Mix was freeze-dried uh, green peppers. Why freeze dried? <laughs> You'd resuscitate them in water. I mean, why? I don't know. I don't know. California olives, which aren't the best. I mean I like the, From mi- the can? The canned the stuff. It's pretty ones. bland, yeah. And then so that was the debt mix. Oh, and canned mushrooms. Ew. But that was the debt mix. And then, so what you do is you cook the quarter pounder, flip, flip it over. You know, you see the little beads of redness, which meant it was time to flip it over. You flip it over, you put the debt mix on top. Then you put a grilled onion slice. That was real. And then you put a slice of American cheese. And then you pour beer over it and put a lid on it, put a lid on it. And it was steamed in beer. It was fantastic. It was so good. I did an updated version in, I think, my first cookbook even with Kalamata olives and cremini mushrooms and chilies. Uh, Either you could use the canned green chilies or you could roast a poblano and put that in. And then, of course, steamed in beer with really wonderful cheddar. Uh, but I have to say,
1: the original version was pretty darn good. <laughs> I was just going to say, Sarah, you might have ruined it, right? I know, really. Sometimes in our, in our zeal to upgrade. And, I know. And the uplift. original was just fine. But that was a really
0: fun time. <laughs> you know, that was a cocoon and a safe time at the Del Rio. My mother was horrified. My mother was a writer and a painter. And she was unfortunately sort of forced to give up her career to co- stay home and have children. Um, by both her mother-in-law and her mother, that was sort of what you did back then. Right. Sarah, and that
1: probably would not happen today.
0: N- no. No. I, no, not at all. Um, and she didn't want my sister and I not to have a career. She also felt it was very important we'd both be able to support ourselves. My dad agreed on that, by the way, even though they had a traditional marriage. So she did not ask me, but she wrote to Craig Claiborne and to Julia Child. And said, if my daughter wants to become a chef, what should she do? And Julia didn't write her back, which was odd, because later on working with Julia, I know Julia wrote everybody back. She must not have gotten the letter. Craig did. And he said, if your daughter wants to become a chef, she should go to cooking school, either the hotel school in Lausanne, which is where he went, or... Or the CIA, the Culinary Institute of America. Well, I didn't want to go to, you know, to Lausanne. I was too far away. Switzerland. Yes. Mm. So I thought, well, I'll apply to the CIA, but they won't accept me. I work in this stupid bar, and I don't even know how to use a chef's knife. <laughs> to my horror, they did. And so I went to my boyfriend, and I said, you know, I just got accepted. I don't want to go. You don't want me to go, do you? Oh, Sarah. And he said, actually, I do. I want to <laughs> see other women. So he he helped to shoot me out of there like a cannon. So that's oh. how I ended up at the CIA.
1: Did he become your husband? Yes, of oh, okay. 38 years. Wow. Well, You've met him, Bill. I don't know him well, Sarah. And I'm learning, too, so much about him and his remarkable career as yeah. a, a music journalist and critic. And yeah. What a couple you are. But...
0: How amazing. Isn't that funny? So mother knew best. And the second I got to the Culinary Institute, I was like, why did I wait? So I was 23 when I started. I was like, why did I wait? You know, because we'd actually talked about it when I was in high school. And then it sort of fallen off the radar screen. But then when she called my bluff and I had to go because I got kicked out by my boyfriend, I was like... (laughs) It was heaven. It was sheer heaven. And you felt that way from the very beginning? From the moment I left, uh, started
1: to the moment I left. Sarah, and when back then, I don't think we really knew anyone who, certainly not women, but who were who were chefs or who would voluntarily choose this as a career path. It just wasn't really so much an option no. then. I don't know how many women were in the class at CIA. Well,
0: it's six to one men to women, which is actually
1: surprising. Hmm. I would have
0: thought it been 10 to one or something. Right. Um And, yeah, we bonded, us ladies. Uh, But, yeah, it was very unusual. And I think most of the fellow students back then were blue-collar men, young men, 18, had not gone to college. And we know what men have on their mind at 18 is party (laughs) and (laughs) – they're, they weren't serious, and the women tended mm. to be much more serious. But those guys looked at us like, what the heck are you doing here? Women don't belong in the kitchen. And the teachers who were all European males mostly. Yes, what um, was that like? The, well, they were not great either. They are sort of like, what are you doing here? But because we were good students, they had to treat us with respect because those boys were not focusing, and we were.
1: And where was the school then? Because I... It, it was in Hyde Park. It was in Hyde Park. Yeah. It had moved from New Haven a couple of years before. Mm-hmm. So... And I, do you remember what you loved so much about it, or just the whole environment, like you felt home? Every single minute of it, I
0: adored. It was the curriculum. Finally, I was learning things I really wanted to know. You know, I went to... Uh, in New York City, I went to the Brerley School, which is a very academic girls' school, and... I sort of gave up my adolescence because all I did was study. But Mm -hmm. years down the road, I realized that that really helped me at the CIA and then at the Food Network because I know how to study I get I'm really good at it. Um, But I loved the the material. Finally, like when I was in high school, I didn't really enjoy what I was learning. But now I would I was like, wow, you know, to to learn things that seem so relevant and to remember them, like how much oil can one egg yolk absorb in a, you know, butter sauce or in a mayonnaise, things like that. So I loved that. Uh, I just love the excitement of it. I loved the physical location, which is on the Hudson. You've been there. It's gorgeous. Very
1: beautiful. And
0: the the original building was actually a monastery. And I have to say, there's something spiritual about Mm. that area, that place. I lived uh, initially in the dorms for the first semester, but then I lived across the river. So I got a little car. I didn't know how to drive until I had to go to (laughs) cooking school. Like (laughs) a lot of New Yorkers, we don't learn how to drive because we don't have to. Right. So I learned how to drive, I got a little VW bug and I just what color? Yellow (laughs) (laughs)
1: like a yellow submarine (laughs) and it was so much fun I lived across the
0: river and it was just magical so anyway everything about it I made friends
1: I loved all my fellow students it was great Sarah Moulton you are magical and when we come back we'll talk more about your amazing career and some advice you would give to women who were starting out now a cooking tip to share. This one from my guest, Sarah Moulton. Well, salt is such an important ingredient and if used correctly, you end up
0: using less salt. But one of the things I always do when um, working with tomatoes, even to put them in a salad, and I still do it out of season. I'm bad, but I get cherry tomatoes. Uh, I have them and salt them and leave them for 20 minutes before I ever put them in the salad. And then I pat them dry and put them in the salad. And what that does, as you know, is pulls out all the excess liquid and deeply seasons them so they taste more tomato-y. So I would say... Think about salting your tomatoes. I always do it for tomato tart to get rid of excess liquid, even if I'm baking them. But also, even if you're gonna put them in a salad or make tomato mozzarella
1: basil, salt those tomatoes 20 minutes ahead of time, pat them dry. They'll be so much tastier. From Sarah's kitchen to yours, give it a try and pass it along. Sarah, I'm hearing nothing but pure joy about your journey uh, in this extraordinary food world that we live in. But were there some challenges, difficult times? What was personally? um... Oh, there were tons. And it mainly had to do with what I already
0: mentioned, which is most men were in charge of restaurants and most men thought women had no place there. Um, Now, when I was in school, it was a safe environment. You know, it wasn't the real world yet. And to me, that was just catnip. You tell me I can't do it. Well, I'm going to show you. <laughs> and because I was such a good student, I did very well. Yes. The thing I'm proudest of, and I never boast about anything, but I always boast about this. I was in a class of 452. I graduated second in the class. I missed what one. What happened? I know. I was so mad. Uh, I missed one by one-tenth of one percent. Oh, Sarah. Wayne Gislin, damn it. I know Wayne. Yeah. He, he was number one. I was lucky enough uh, when I moved to Boston. I did my externship in Cambridge because that grumpy boyfriend moved to Boston. <laughs> um, I say to be nearer to me. He said to uh, as a stepping stone to New York, which is where he was wanted to go. But anyway, we got back together again for my externship, and I worked at the Harvest Restaurant, which is in Harvard Square, which is the only restaurant I've ever I worked at that's still standing. I worked at a whole bunch of restaurants. And Sarah, that they're I all... worked
1: there too. When? <laughs> when? So I went to Tufts, mm-hmm. and I worked, but it wasn't called The Harvest. Before it was The Harvest, it was actually called The Brattle Street Restaurant, and it was at 44 Brattle Street. Correct. And then
0: it became The Harvest. It's between. It's through that little uh, underpass, That's right? That's right.
1: Oh, my gosh, Sarah. <sighs> what so this, a riot. This must have been nineteen seventy. 374, right? but I think I was front of the house, and I didn't know I loved food so much yet, so I was a waitress. Do
0: you know, that is so funny. (laughs) They should add that to their roster, because so many, and I wasn't even important. Well, I wasn't important there, but they have so many great chefs who worked there, Yes, and I'd been hired, actually, I had a very hard time getting a job for my externship. I sent out a million letters, and again, it was all men. None of them would hire me or even interview me. Um, but a, a man from the harvest, he was a chef, I don't remember his name, hired me. But then by the time I got there, he'd been fired. Mm-hmm. And the person who was in charge was Lydia Shire. Oh, my goodness. An iconic chef. Um, she was somebody who was doing it before you or me, Roseanne. Yes, I mean, there yes, were women. We just didn't know about them yet. Um, and she was fantastic. Uh, I was on the cold station at night. My job was was garde manger. was to do salads and apps, and to open oysters and clams, which was so traumatic. And uh, to this day, I'm not real fast at it. You think I would have gotten better, but um, <laughs> and I have plenty of scars, although they're all fading. But at the end of my shift, um, Lydia said, "Come on over here," because she was still finishing up the hot line, mm. and she had me sort of stand there and watch everything she did. You know, so I got a one-on-one tutorial. You know, this is how hot the pan should be when the meat hits it. This is the sound the meat should make when it goes in there. This is how much you should season the meat. This is how you should balance the sauce. These are all the things that should go in. It was wonderful. So I was lucky enough to work with her in a she, nightly masterclass. You Yes, had, didn't you. One-on-one. Wow, And She's that amazing. was only for 3 months, but then her sous chef was a woman named Laura Beamer who has a different last name right now whose name last name I can't remember, but at any rate, uh, Lydia ended up getting let go. They had a revolving door of chefs. The management was interesting back then. And Laura became the chef and hired me back as the sous chef when I graduated from cooking school. So I went back and worked there. So I was lucky to work first for Lydia and then for Laura. And then I was hired by another woman, Rebecca Karras, who had a whole empire in Boston. I was hired to work at her catering operation. And then... Uh, From there, I ended up as chef of one of her restaurants. So I worked with women. And not to say that women can't be every bit as difficult, if not more so, than men sometimes, because it's like they've arrived and they don't want to share the limelight. But the women I worked for were great. So I was very lucky. It didn't really hit me head on because I was either working for a woman or I was the boss. It didn't hit me head on until I tried to come to New York and get a job, which was in 81. And what made you want
1: to make that move?
0: Well, first of all, the husband, as I said, <laughs> stepping stone, Boston, New York. And we decided we were going to get married in the fall of 80. And um, secondly, well, I just, I mean, he was here and I, you know, I
1: had familiarity with New York. I grew up here. Of course. And so my, let me just ask, did you know Julia during that time? Because you I met her so at the catering place at the catering place because yes.
0: somebody hooked us up and I ended up working on her. Uh, public television show called Julia Child and More Company, in Boston. In Boston, okay. so that's where I met her and worked with her, and that's how I ended up with that job in France. But any rate, so I moved to New York in eighty one, and by then uh, I was pretty close to Julia. I mean, she never had any real children, but she had plenty of other children. You know, in yes. quotes like but me. But Sarah,
1: you were so close to her. I mean, I know well, other people who were as well, well but you had a were. special, very well, special place.
0: We, she, we, well, whatever. I, lo- I adored her. At any rate, she gave me an introduction to every good restaurant in New York City. The trouble was every good restaurant in New York City at the helm was a European male, you know, sort of back to where I'd been at the CIA. And so I w- I'd go on. Meanwhile, my girlfriend, um, Sandy Gluck, took me in. She was chef at a restaurant downtown. You know Sandy. Yes, I do. Um, where was she cooking? Cafe New Amsterdam. She oh, was the great. chef. It was a great place. It was a very nice restaurant. Uh, it's no longer there. There's a different restaurant. Near Corner Bistro. Everybody knows Corner Bistro because that's where they have the great burgers. But not debt burgers. Not the debt burger. <laughs> Maybe I should tell them. Um, so at any rate, I, she, she took me in as her sous chef till t- 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 I got the big job. And um, I but I wasn't getting the big job. I, you know, applied to all these different places. And even though the chef would meet with me as a courtesy to Julia, you know, I never got any
1: offers. And do you remember feeling very dejected, disappointed? Were your expectations very high at that point? Or you were just going with the flow? I was
0: frustrated, but I knew exactly what was going on
1: Mm.
0: there. You know, I had no I I knew Uh, I was used to it. And but one of the one of the people that I interviewed with uh, introduction from, from Julie was Sally Dar, who was the chef owner of La Tulipe, and prior to La Tulipe had been at Gourmet Magazine for many years, in charge of the test kitchen, and also did all those great gourmet books, uh, Food to France and other books, um, and before that had also worked on the Time Life series, you know, the wonderful foods of the world. Yes. Um, so anyway, I interviewed with Sally, and Sally was honest. She said she had this wonderful little restaurant three stars as you mentioned Mimi Sher- Sheridan gave them three stars after i don't know a couple of months it was crazy <laughs> it was that good but it was that good i, I agree that. 100% but she said well you know you know i'd like to hire you but i'm the only woman in the kitchen and i like it that way
1: <gasps> don't you love that
0: well i like your honesty <laughs> Me i have too. to say um <laughs> it was her restaurant she was the chef although she had no formal training uh but she Was amazing, Um, and but I didn't go away. You know, I kept in touch. I say that to young people all the time. Oh,
1: Sarah, then I'm going to change my response. Okay, I thought she said that and then hired you. No, that she said that and didn't hire you. No, I feel a little differently. No, no, she did not hire
0: me. But I would not go away, and so I stayed in touch with her. And suddenly, somebody walked out right before her vacation. And she didn't know what to do. She was going to come back and not have. It was Chef Tournant was the job. And um, Actually, can you describe what that is? Yes. Chef Tournant, tournée means to turn. So Tournant means you do a different job every day. Essentially, you're the substitute cook, which doesn't sound glamorous, but it's absolutely wonderful. It's like an understudy on Broadway. You have to know it all. You have to know every single role. Yeah. Uh, So one day – so she hired me, and I got the job, and I did the job um, for two years, and what what so one day I'd be washing lettuce and setting up salads. The next day I'd be making pastries, and that was great because Sally was an amazing baker, really good. And I had, you know, you, you usually you tend towards one direction or another, That's either right. you're a cooker or a, a baker. And I'd always been a cooker, so my baking half was somewhat deficient, even though I'd been trained in it. But I really learned a lot from her. So that was great. And then on Sunday nights, I was the chef, meaning the chef de cuisine. Um, so it's a wild job. Every day was different, and I had to learn everything. And I think I learned more there in those two years than any other job or in any other position I ever had before that. And that includes i worked with Julia. I've worked with Jacques Pepin. I went to the CIA. Um,
1: you know, that, that was really it. That was where I learned so much. I remember some of the dishes. They were very famous for this tureen. Sarah, remind me again. It was layers of foie gras and tongue, smoked tongue, yeah, smoked tongue, yeah. Oh my God! It
0: was like a hundred. It felt like a hundred layers. That was one of the things I had to do one of the days, and it was really a lot of work. She had a special mold made for it, and you would literally stand there and put down a couple slices. She would cook the she would cook the tongue from scratch. She didn't buy it. Mm. It must not have been smoked because she didn't smoke it, so it was tongue. You're right, it was tongue, but she had great flavor in the water very much. And then she would slice it paper thin on the slicer, and then you'd have to layer it in this mold. And then you'd have to take the mousse and put a very thin, um, you know, spreading of it, like frosting a cake, and then another layer, like it was hundreds of layers. <laughs> and then you had to chill it, and it would set up a course, and it was
1: delicious. It was so funny because it was exotic. But it was also so classic, and also there were things on the menu that no New Yorker had ever had before, even if they had traveled to France, Absolutely. Right? This was truly her unique cuisine, and I think about your food that way, too. But what was one of the pastries that was very famous there? Was there a pithafier, or
0: She what, did, or? well, she did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, she also did she a did tart tatin. <laughs> she also did a French apple tart in the shape of a row. She did individual ones. Well, ones for two. That were beautiful. Maybe that's what I'm remembering. It was unique. Also the apricot souffle, the Latulip apricot souffle that looked like the Taj Mahal.
1: I'm not sure I remember that. Oh, Oh my God. It's the
0: most amazing recipe. It's um, based on dried California apricots, not Turkish. They're too sweet. Uh, The Mm. California ones are much brighter and sunnier. Anyway, the base is California apricots that you resuscitate in water with sugar, lemon juice. You heat it up, let it them plump up. You puree them. Um, she added, we added rum when we did a version at Gourmet. I forget what she added. She might have added Kirsch. Um, and then that's your base. It gets leavened with egg whites, beaten with sugar. And something about the dried apricots, maybe it's the pectin or maybe that they were dried. It is such a dense souffle that you can shape it you don't just plop it in and bake it. You put it in and it's got enough, especially you had, but you had to adjust. This is what I learned from her. I knew exactly what the right consistency was is sometimes we might have to add a little extra water to the apricots. Um, But you could shape it. um, And we did. And um, not only did we, I say we, because it was my job one night a week to make these to order. Well, we would do seven at a time. But the egg whites were beaten in a copper bowl, then you had to shape it. And it ended up looking like the Taj Mahal. But you would shape it and park it in the fridge, which is unheard of for a souffle. You make a souffle and you put it in the oven. But this held up because these apricots were so dense. Uh, I think you could do it with any dried fruit, uh, really. Um, And then you'd pop it in, you know, it probably would be fine an hour later, an hour and a half later. Then you'd pop it in and bake it off. People would have to order it at the beginning of the meal. And then the waiter, there was a lot of table-side exciting stuff that happened. Would uh, We'd take it out. We'd dust it with confectioner's sugar. And then the waiter would take it out and lift off the top part of the Taj Mahal yeah. and put whipped cream inside. Oh, my God. And then put the top back on. And wow.
1: Sarah, just I guess gorgeous. I never had this because I think I would remember... It is such a joy to just listen to you talk about food in this way and also to remember a lot to leap and how really important it was. Sarah, why isn't anyone cooking like this anymore?
0: I don't really know. I mean, it's just not Sally and Dar, Sally and John Dar never got rich doing this, as we all know. You know, it's really hard to make money in the restaurant industry and people who did used to do fine dining like Danny Meyer. I mean, he still does. Where he makes his money is Shake Shack. You know, it's like Jasper White was a great chef in, um, you know, Boston. New England and mm-hmm. in Boston in particular had a wonderful restaurant called Jasper's. Where do you make his money? Summer Shack, which is a place where, you know, it's, it's much more – it's not quite like a Shake Shack. They still have some
1: higher-end stuff, but it's not fancy. And it's true. I think the fine dining is kind of ending slowly and there's this vast casualization of food and design and the whole restaurant experience for sure. Uh, I don't know – If I ever thought about this, but and maybe people ask you this all the time, but did you ever want a restaurant of your own? That was my goal. When
0: I went to cooking Uh
1: school, I wanted to be the owner of a small,
0: fine dining restaurant. But I had this head-slapping moment when I was at (laughs) La Tulipe. I was getting into my 30s, and I was like, oh, my God, I can't get pregnant. I want to have kids. Mm. If I'm working 80 hours a week and the husband was then (laughs) covering concerts... You know, I was like, "What? Are, how are we going to even connect to hatch a child if I'm working this many hours? <laughs> so that's why I left the restaurant industry. And it is a problem and a roadblock I do not have the answer to. Um, I think women would stay, many women would stay longer in the industry than they do except for this problem. You have to either not want to have kids mm. or have a meaningful other, a partner who's willing to stay home or to stay home part of the time to do the lion's work I mean nobody stays home these days anymore. You need two people making income and taking care of the kids and especially sharing, in New York, sharing yes. the responsibilities, but
1: you need somebody to really focus on the kids. It's it's really a problem. Sarah, do you think it's one of the reasons women really do make other choices? They love the food industry, but they become more entrepreneurial or they'll open a bakery or they'll teach or oh, write or yes, I think or that's absolutely. still the reason.
0: Although I find cuz I I do I I am in contact with a lot of young women um, and I like the idea of trying to help them along and help them figure out what to do. And I often get them right when they're in cooking school or out of cooking school. I think they're still intimidated to go into the restaurant industry. They still find it difficult, you know, that they're going to not – they they drank the Kool-Aid. No, women should not be in the kitchen, you know, to which I always say, although, again, it doesn't always work this way, go find yourself a kitchen with a woman at the helm. Uh, that doesn't always work perfectly. But also I say head west, young lady. Uh, I think restaurants in California in general have always been easier for women to work in.
1: More welcoming. Parti- and- yeah,
0: and partially because there are a lot of women out there already. But even so, it's always
1: been a gentler place to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that this is really still the reality, but I, I know that it is. Yeah, uh, And also that women are so entrepreneurial and creative and, and uh, have great ideas. Young
0: people are in general. I mean, I'm just floored every time I find out yet new careers and companies that I didn't even
1: know could exist that these young people are inventing. (laughs) Absolutely. Oh, this is great, Sarah. When we come back, I want to hear what's important to you now, what's going on these days. If you're wondering about my beautiful theme music, it's called The Garden, written and performed by award-winning singer-songwriter Audrey Appleby. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold. And check out everything I'm up to on my website at rosangold.com. Sarah, you're a mother, you're a chef, you're a cookbook author, you're a legend. But tell me, what's important to you now? What's going on these days? Well, 2020. I,
0: well, when- I'm slowing down. I call myself semi-retired or semi-employed. Um, That's funny. Yeah, I can't decide which. (laughs) I'm not done yet, but I'm happy to really slow down because at times I've had too much going on. Um, So my number one love is my public television show, Sarah's Weeknight Meals. Um, We're going to be taping season 10. Season 9 is still airing, and it's all on YouTube. We have a Sarah Moulton, uh, Sarah's Weeknight Meals YouTube channel. Um so Happy after list. it's all aired once it goes up there. Um and I just love doing it. I co-own it. I love my partner Natalie Gustafson. We have so much fun. Uh I mean, and public, where do you actually tape it? Where does it happen? We tape it whenever and wherever we get the money. <laughs> it's all about Perfect. getting the money. <laughs> There's no um product placement or advertising when you have sponsors, which is very hard. You have to find people who get the halo effect that they're associated with you. I mean, they do get an announcement at the top and the tail of the show. Mm-hmm. But So I do things for them outside of the show, but also one of our current sponsors— I'm not going to say who it is because then everybody will try to go grab them— is an ocean liner. And um, so we've ended up doing some traveling. Wonderful. And that's been wonderful. Um, I really love that because— a weeknight meal is a weeknight meal anywhere on the planet. Mm. Uh, you know, <laughs> people want to get dinner on the table every night. And so it's fun to
1: go to other cultures and, and have somebody from that country make their weeknight meal. And what's the criteria of getting something on the table quickly for weeknight? Do you have uh, – or weekday?
0: We, we look at it from every single mm-hmm. angle,
1: including cook,
0: cook once, eat twice or three times. You know, make a big roast, do a lot of things with it. Or um, slow cooker we've done. We had Michelle um, Chicoloneon, who's done some wonderful slow cooker books. You know, the sort of thing where you throw it in and forget about it. Um, We've had, in tribute to people like you, five ingredient recipes or three ingredient (laughs) recipes. I can't do three. You're you're a wizard. They're hard. But um, I've tried (laughs) five. And so we do things like that. Cooking out of the pantry. Mm. Um, We also try to cover... Well, many different nationalities, so I do have guests, but also vegetarian. We we don't do vegan. Um, I stick more to the vegetarian, but we try to do that and talk about how to, you know, uh, be sustainable in your choices. Along this journey of 40 years,
1: you also did something that was so relevant and... Um, Life changing, I think, for many women in this industry. You created an organization called the Women's Culinary Alliance. I don't remember the year, I don't remember the challenges, but it was 1982. So, you know, I'd
0: just gone through this whole business of not being able to get a job because none of the men would hire me. And when I was in Boston, I'd just come from Boston in '81, um, we talked about that. I mean, when I say we, Julia, sort of, Julia Child had. A lot of women and and young people who she sort of hung out with, we'd cook dinner parties at her house, and we decided that it wasn't fair that women didn't have organizations like men. So we founded in Boston the Boston Women's Culinary Guild in the late 70s. And based on that model, when I moved to New York and I was finding it hard, I was like, oh, I want to do this here Um, originally we were supposed to be a junior Les Dames, uh, which is another culinary organization, but that didn't work out. The board did not approve that we do that. So we formed our own group. And the idea being that it's all about networking and education, pretty much period, end of sentence. And that as long as you're a full-time professional, which means a minimum of 35 hours per week, you live in the tri-state area and you be an active member. Um, you can join. So we take people right out of cooking school because that's when you need your help. You don't need help. I mean, it's fun to socialize down the road, but you need help getting jobs in the beginning. And I used it a lot, uh, especially when I was a chef at Gourmet, to source people. To to do things like let's say I needed a bag a Gucci bag
1: you know made out of chocolate that looks like Gucci <laughs> I could find that person in the alliance. Oh, this was so ahead of its time, Sarah, because this was also before Facebook and social media and right. Instagram and connecting with people was vital. Right, good for you. Right.
0: So and it's it's we formed in '82. We're still going great guns. It keeps evolving. The current president, Rodia Hersey, is fantastic. So it's it's a wonderful group.
1: And how many members do you have I now? think we have – see, this is the prob- – Rowdy would know. We started with 100. I think we have 200. Wonderful. Maybe over, slightly over. And the idea is not just the numbers, but that they're active and that it's they working. They have to be active. Yes. Fantastic. You, it,
0: or you'll be asked to drop out, but then you can rejoin and do better the next time.
1: <laughs> do better. Yeah. It's a good slogan. Sarah, um, of all of the things that you've done, is there something that's standing out to you Now, at this stage, you know, the answer might have been different 10, 20 years ago, but like, you know, with some perspective and some maturity and and maybe even thinking about the future a little bit, what was the most important time or experience for you? The live show I did on the Food Network.
0: That was something else. And this was called... It was called Cooking live. live. It was actually live. We got, It was an hour-long show. It was Monday through Thursday um, for those years, six years. And um, we got about five callers a night, and it was real. I didn't know the questions. Um, and I would cook, let's say the theme was strawberries or a pot roast or Whatever it was, they'd have to call in on the topic and ask questions. And what was fun was it wasn't just me talking. Um, there was an exchange. As Zan Stewart put it, a friend of mine from Gourmet, it was like every night you had a town meeting and everybody weighed in on the topic. Oh, that's and it was so great. much fun. And I loved the crew. Uh had so many guests, you know, it, it was just fantastic. Well, I think
1: that's when we all decided you really were a genius <laughs> to be able to do I'm that I'm just every good at studying. Life. Thank you, Brearley. <laughs> <laughs> so wonderful. Sarah, I'm sure you have many answers to this question. But um, if you were to choose, again, at this point in your career, uh, a legacy recipe, maybe other than the debt burger, which was actually not your recipe <laughs> – But is there a recipe that you would want to make sure your children knew how to make or thought about you when they ate it? Or what would be a legacy recipe? Well,
0: this is a rough question because what my family loves the most is braised short ribs beef. But it's not my recipe. It's a takeoff on Tom Valenti's. Good. When he was at Allison on Dominic. Yes. But it's, there's nothing original about it, but it is what they want for every birthday. It's what we have every Thanksgiving. We don't have turkey. We have braised short ribs. Um, so it might be that, but um, I it it could also be um, a dish that I don't think I ever even wrote down. So this is not very helpful. But when I was working as, at a restaurant in Boston called Sibel's C-Y-B-E-L-E-S, um, I one time my husband Bill came in for dinner, and I wanted he loved duck, loved duck, and I wanted to make a dish and name it after him, so I did. And the it's husband's called duck. The husband's well, called, <laughs> and I don't even think this is correct French, because um, I don't think you'd say it this way. But I, I called it Duck Bon Guillaume. Guillaume is French for William. Bon means good, so it means
1: duck good. Good William, but it sounds beautiful in French. It does. It does, does it? Does it not sound very
0: French? <laughs> um, and it was essentially coq au vin, but use it, but not braised. It was roast duck, and then I'd make a sauce with Lardon and carrots and pearl onions and red wine and duck, deeply flavored duck stock. Mm. I love duck; it's sort of my specialty. But there, there would be that. I'm sorry, I'm giving you too many answers. No, it's but wonderful. The one that's the easiest, and that I think people remember me for, although now I'm not sure it's. The best way to do it, but it's certainly a weeknight meal, is blasted chicken. So it's roast chicken. Uh, you What's only your have secret? To, well, you only have to remember one thing. Well, you have to make, remember two numbers. <laughs> one is a three-and-a-half-pound chicken, which isn't as oh, easy. Oh, that's hard to find. It is. Back then it wasn't. Mm. Uh, but you can still find maybe three-and-three-quarters-pound, uh, but three-and-a-half-pounders used to be the broilers. Um, and the other, other number is 45 you cook it at 40, 450 for 45 minutes. So here's what happens. And this is based <laughs> on working at La Latulip and family meal. So we had family meal every night at four, right? And one of the things we would do, the ovens are always at 500. Um, so somebody, whoever was in charge of dinner, and some nights it was me, would roast these chickens. And all you do is you season them. So they're three and a half pounders, small chickens. You don't trust them, which is stupid anyway. I never understood trusting. <laughs> I, I don't I cook more evenly. I don't think so. Not at all. And I like crispy skin. So you want those armpits exposed. You know, you don't want those legs tied up. So you just season it inside now, throw it in a 500 degree oven, taken out after 45 minutes. But the key is let it rest for 15.
1: Uh-huh. So okay.
0: it takes an hour from start to finish, it takes five minutes to prep, um, and it's absolutely delicious. Now, is that a killer recipe? Yes. It actually sort of <laughs> I'm going to go home and make it tonight. <laughs> but is it unusual? I mean, there's no lemon stuffed in. There's nothing under the skin. There's no brine, wet brine. There's no dry brining. There's nothing else. It's just what I just said. See?
1: So it's a one-ingredient recipe, Sarah, because salt, pepper, and water don't count.
0: (laughs) Oh, well, you would know. You would know. That sounds great. You invented that.
1: That sounds great. So those are all wonderful uh, legacy recipes, and they don't have to be yours exclusively. so you are still continuing to stretch and grow and try new things. I understand you have um, – you're a co-host of a, a new podcast or yes. a radio show.
0: Yes. It's actually a couple of years old. I can't even remember ah. when I started doing it. But it's with Chris Kimball, who I've known for years, sort of like I've known you for years, Um I actually wrote a, rich, a couple of articles for the first Cooks magazine in the 80s. And he had started that. He had started yes. that, and then it shut down, and he started the new Cooks Illustrated. But then he left Cooks Illustrated, I think it was three years ago, and started a new company called Milk Street. Yes.
1: My sister-in-law swears by this magazine. It's,
0: she it's thinks great. it's great. It's great. It's great. It's, uh, it's an international model you know it's so funny because it it's so reminiscent of what we did at gourmet you know all those years because it was a travel magazine so of course we were dealing with a lot of the kinds of recipes that he's highlighting now but it's now we're at a time when people can actually get the ingredients and uh, really want to make these recipes from around the world so it's an international model which is great but anyway we do uh, a weekly Radio show slash podcast. And my role, I'm only on for 20 minutes or so of it in two 10 minute segments, is to take questions from callers. Oh, back to the. So it's very similar to Cooking Live. And it's sort of fun because we play Bad Cop, Good Cop. Or as he's he wants it. Everybody always wants car talk, you know, that thing where they (laughs) fought all the time. And we can fight because he's now thrown out the whole French model, which is what I grew up with. You learn French cuisine and then, you know, you can do almost any other kind. And he's like, no, that's absurd. You shouldn't even have pepper in your pantry. Who
1: needs black pepper except for specific recipes?
0: Um, So he and I fight all the time. It's really fun. I
1: can't wait to tune in. It yeah. sounds great. Sarah, how does everyone actually get in touch with you to listen to the radio show, to see you on television? Your, uh, I don't know if there's another book in the, in the works. Never. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, oh, I can relate. <laughs> I know. I feel like you could.
0: They just they take over your life. Um, I have a website called SarahMoulton.com. As I mentioned, we have a YouTube channel, Sarah's Weeknight Meals, which airs all my public television shows, not the current season, but all the past. Um, you can email me. I answer all my own emails, sarah at com. So generous if you. If you just forgot that, there's a contact button on my w- website that will explain how to get to me. Um, yeah, I think that's about it. And And on my website, we talk about all the things that I'm doing, when the new show is airing, when when I've done a podcast with somebody like you we'll we'll put it up. I also have social media that I do, but the website's the best place to go, I think.
1: And Sarah, do you think if a young woman wrote to you today, you would give her the same advice that Craig Claiborne gave to you way back when? It depends. Uh it really depends on what she wants to do.
0: Because and this is a whole other discussion. There's a whole lot of people in the our, our industry who have absolutely no training and are extremely successful with very little knowledge about the actual subject. So maybe you don't have to go to cooking school. But if I feel like somebody is serious, I would recommend they go to cooking school. Um And I also always recommend, even though, as I said, there's a lot of pushback from these young women I've been meeting, I always recommend to go work in restaurants after cooking school for as long as you can stand it and afford it, because there's no better training you will get for anything else in the industry. And I have done everything in the industry. Yes, you have.
1: (laughs) Then you get at a restaurant. What does one woman kitchen mean to you?
0: So what I would say about one woman's kitchen is it's Food is so unifying, so comforting, so key to our daily lives uh, that that is women are naturally, contrary to what all these men have been telling us, (laughs) women are good at this. And that's what we should keep our focus on is bringing people together through food.
1: So beautiful. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you to all of you for joining me and Sarah on One Woman Kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2019. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at RoseanneGold.com. Thank you for listening.
0: This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect.